Dr. Sue Stanfield from the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. And this podcast will examine the development of Texas as part of um, Spain and Mexico, as well as its time as an independent um, nation. And to help me today, I uh, have Dr. Charles Martin, a retired professor uh, at UTEP, and he's our resident expert on all things Texas history. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I guess to get started, um, maybe it would help for us to understand what Texas was in these early, early periods. And so I'm wondering, uh, what was Texas like under Spanish rule? I mean, was it well settled? Um, Kind of where did it lay out? Well, the first thing is to define Texas geographically, because we now know what the state looks like. But back under the Spanish era, what we call Texas, or Spanish Texas, was really modern-day East Texas and Central Texas, south of San Antonio down to the Nueces River. So this means Nueces River is about 130 miles north of the Rio Grande and kind of parallels it. So this means that the lower Rio Grande Valley down by Brownsville, McAllen, West Texas, Odessa Midland, El Paso, and the Panhandle were not part of Texas, as we discuss it during the Spanish, Mexican, and the Republic of Texas era. So what we really, when we say Texas, we're talking about Spanish Texas. And then when Texas absorbs all this other territory, we sort of inherit this earlier history. But El Paso, for example, was tied in with the history of the development of New Mexico. So it that is El Paso and West Texas, have really nothing to do with Texas independence and the Republic of Texas. It's only in 1848 and 1850 that El Paso and the Panhandle and West Texas become part of what we now call Texas. As for the Spanish, um, their settlement of Texas was uh, pretty disappointing. There wasn't gold or silver, not lots of Indians to work on farmland, So Texas really languished. New Mexico was kind of a success story, but Texas was sort of like the problem child. It was very difficult to get settlers to go north. Uh, One colleague used to say you had to be either really brave or really stupid to go to (laughs) Texas because there were far more profitable areas to go to. So basically, Spain actually probably controlled less territory than the indigenous peoples did through 1821. Ah, okay. And so um, how did, once Mexico becomes independent in 1821, how do they view Texas? Is it like just part of Mexico? Do they see it as sort of a, a more distant colony? How do they, how does it fit within that, that idea of a, a Mexican nation? Well, the idea is that Mexico is a large nation, but with a modest population. And the northern frontier areas, which would be Texas, New Mexico, and California, are seen as, you know, weakly attached to the rest of the country. Now, New Mexico is pretty well developed. California kind of lags, but it's going to be settled more. But Texas is really the problem child. And it's a problem for a couple of reasons. Uh, For one thing... um, it's not really much of a buffer zone against the more valuable parts of Mexico further south. So, for example, you have the Plains Indians, especially Comanches, increasing their raids through Texas. So they control vast areas of Texas. And so they're a threat not just to Texas, but to northern Mexico. And they, in fact, will raid down into Durango even in Paral. 
And then on the other side, on East Texas, across the Sabine River, you've got all these Americans moving into Louisiana and also up into Arkansas. So you've got lots of Americans moving up to the border. So Mexican political leaders are very nervous that Texas isn't much of a protective shield and that they might lose it to these Americans or it'll be overrun by Indians. So they want to do something to shore it up. What they come up with is this idea of trying to encourage immigration there through what's called the impresario system. So they have these guys called impresarios. They're kind of like real estate agents, immigration officials, and local law enforcement. And they get like a a territory of land, kind of like a real estate developer. And if they recruit enough immigrants to come in, then they get all this free land as their reward. But there's a catch. They're supposed to bring in people from Central Mexico, people from Europe, and also Americans, so that it doesn't Americanize the area. Okay, so they're going to balance each other out, uh, because if they only brought in Americans, it'd be like letting the fox into the hen house. Right. Because it's supposed to be a barrier, okay? And people like Stephen F. Austin, you know, for whom we have, you know, the city of Austin, Austin Mm -hmm. High School, Austin College. He's the most successful of these entrepreneurs, these impresarios, but he mostly brings in, or almost exclusively brings in Americans. And with one or two exceptions, most of the others bring in Americans. So by the end of the... The 20s, Mexican government's beginning to wonder, you know, what's going on? Do we have an immigration problem in Texas? Because we aren't getting this balance. We're mostly just getting these Americans. And are they Mexicanizing? So when does Austin start bringing people into Texas? Well, working with his father, he starts as early as 1821. Oh, wow. And he gets a Spanish permit, but then the royal government goes away. Right. So then he gets a permit under the emperor, Augustine Iturbide, but then he is abdicates. So I had to go back again and get another permit under the Republic of Mexico, under the Constitution of 1824, which was their main constitution, and which gave a lot of power to the states and let the states have a lot of influence on immigration. And so Texas is part of the state of Coahuila y Tejas. It's not big enough to be its own state. And the political and economic leaders of Coahuila, they want outside investors and outside people to come in. So they're promoting immigration, but they're also nervous about Texans coming in too. So they need to do something. There's a problem. They don't want it to be taken over by the U.S., who they see as a very aggressive neighbor. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the only people that seem to want to go there are Americans, basically. There's one one guy, Martin de Leon, who brings a couple hundred Mexicans from Tamaulipas up. And there are a few Irish immigrants, but basically almost all the immigrants that come in in the 20s are from the United States. Okay. So when it gets closer, so we start looking at the 1830s, and sort of the beginning of a of a fight between what becomes Texas and Mexico. Um, I'm kind of curious, like what what sparks this? Why does why does a revolution begin? Okay, why do they why do they revolt? Well, in 1830, the Mexican Congress passes a controversial law. It's called the Immigration Law of 1830, and it was to deal with the immigration problem. And basically, what it did was ban immigration from any neighboring country, mm-hmm. which I guess meant. Guatemala, in the U.S. (laughs) So in other words, basically, it tried to end almost all immigration from the U.S., unless you went to a certified approved colony like Austin's. 
And they also banned the importation of slaves as well, too, which was designed to keep Americans out as well. And so from 1830 to 1834, there's supposed to be a ban on immigration from the U.S. The only problem is that Americans keep right on moving in. And so Mexican, Mexico has an illegal immigration problem from mm -hmm. 1830 to 1834. Uh, they don't build a wall. They don't have a fence. They don't have a border patrol. And so Americans just keep pouring in so that uh, very quickly, uh, and even by 1830, there are more Anglo-Americans in Texas than there are pe people we'd call Tejanos, that is people of Spanish, Mexican, Mestizo, indigenous background. So even in 1830, um, Anglo-Texans are outnumbering Mexican Texans, and those numbers keep going up, and the gap becomes wider and wider through the 1830s. And finally, in 1834, the Mexican government kind of gives up on that, uh, but they're now concerned that uh, their policies haven't worked and that Texas has all of these illegal and legal Americans that have come in, and they're not sure how trustworthy they are. So, you know... When you think about the American Revolution, it always has these ideas of, of liberty and independence. Um, I'm not sure, like, what are the underlying reasons for the Texas independence? Do they use liberty as part of their rhetoric, or is it really more pragmatic? It's for economic reasons or cultural reasons. Why? It's a little bit of all of those and more. It, it's really kind of complicated because in Mexico, after independence, uh, they— Initially, under this Constitution of 1834, they set up a government that kind of shares power between the central government and the states. Uh, and people that support that system are called Federalist. But there's another group called Centralist. I believe that's a mistake, that Mexico is just too big a country with too few people to let the states have authority because it'll kind of fragment. So they believe in a strong central government with a strong figure running it, you know, hold the country together. And the centralists gained power um, briefly, and then again in 1834 under Jose Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the infamous Santa Ana, at least infamous from the Texas point of view. And so he and the centralists, it's not just him, it's the whole centralists, they create a, a new centralized system and they take power away from the states. So stop and think, if you're on the northern frontier of Mexico, whether you're in Texas or New Mexico or California, do you want to be told what to do for Mexico City or do you want to make decisions for yourself? Pretty obvious, right? Yeah. Okay, so Texans side with the Federalist and this big political divide in Mexico, which leads to actually rebellions once the centralists take over. There's a rebellion in Zacatecas, which Santa Ana crushes and slaughters a lot of people. So there are little regional rebellions against this growing power of the central government in Mexico City and Santa Ana. And so Texans, uh, both Anglo-American Texans and Mexican Texans uh, talk about their rights. They talk about their rights under the Constitution of 1834, and they complain about tyranny. And so they do use liberty sometimes. At least the Anglo-Texans are, many of them are slaveholders, and many of them would like to be slaveholders. So when they, their concept of liberty is limited to um, the people as they define it, sort of a heron-voke democracy, the real people. Mm -hmm. And... Mexican Texans are included in that in 1834, but newcomers coming in uh, aren't so sure maybe that they should be included. Well, and that's the same language that's used in the Dred Scott decision, that it's a question of who are the people. So that's, 
that's interesting that it it stems much earlier from that. Yeah, I mean, who you know, who are the real people? And tech, the Anglo Texans, who they're longer, tend to get along pretty well with the Mexican Texans. They don't live right next to each other. The Mexican Texans or Tejanos are more in um, the southern part, San Antonio, et cetera. So they don't they don't settle next to each other. So that makes it a little bit easier for them to get along. But from 1834 on, then you begin to have talk of separation. You know, should you join the Federals and secede, basically, from Mexico mm-hmm. temporarily, or should you think about breaking off permanently? And what will happen is that Tejanos will support this idea of separation. That's what the Federalists support. Break off temporarily until you reform the Mexican government back to where it should be. Okay. But some Anglo-Texans are thinking, hmm, I think— you know, independence and annexation to the U.S. would be a far better deal. So there is talk about independence, but when it begins to come up, it's pretty clear that the people using that language see independence only as a temporary way station before annexation to the United States. So that's really the ultimate end game in mind is to become part of the U.S. instead of... For lots of the um, Anglo-American settlers, most definitely. So who, how does, how does the war begin? How does the military, you know, a Texas army develop? Who, who joins? Is it Anglos? Is it, are they higher? You know, who, who's part of this revolution? Well, it starts out with some isolated incidents of little clashes between local people and Mexican troops because Mexico didn't have much of a military presence, but they had to collect customs. And so they added some forts. And so there are these small scale little flare ups. But beginning the latter part of 1835, he gets more serious. And most of this is from the Anglo-American settlers who, by 1835, and they didn't have a census, so we don't know, but uh, some people say maybe 80% of the Texas population was Anglo-American and only 20% Tejano. Uh, Some say that by early 1836, there were probably more African-American enslaved people in Texas than they actually were Tejanos. Oh, wow. So keep in mind, we're talking about what we call Old Spanish Texas, East Texas and Central Texas, south of San Antonio for a little while to the Nueces. So that's the area we're talking about. And so you've had more and more people come in bringing slaves. So they're between 10 and 15 percent of the population. And Tejanos are somewhere between 10 and 20 percent. We don't know exactly. So it's become an overwhelmingly... Anglo state. And so the Anglos tend to take the lead. And so the fighting really begins in in October, November, December of 1835, when Texas forces, which are mostly Anglo, uh, surround Spanish forces in San Antonio and eventually win a victory and drive out the um, Spanish, excuse me, the Mexican soldiers that are there. And then in the spring, Santa Ana comes back with an army in 1836. So he besieges the Alamo. They're also a separate Mexican army that captures Goliad. Uh, So those are the next two battles. And then the ultimate battle in April is the Battle of San Jacinto. Now, there are some Tejanos that fight in these uh, battles. There's something like nine Tejanos that die at the Alamo. Uh, There's a major cavalry force led by Juan Seguin from the prominent Seguin family in the San Antonio area. And they were at the Alamo for a little bit, but then they go off to join Houston and they fight at the Battle of San Jacinto. Although since they didn't have formal uniforms, they have to wear some kind of 
a flag. It's not a flag. They put some kind of uh, leaves or branches on them so they can be distinguished from the Mexican soldiers, most of whom we do have uniforms. Um, so there is this participation in uh, Juan Seguin's the most obvious uh, military person like that. Sam Houston's really the key militarily because he was a really smart military leader. Most of the Anglo-Texans wanted to just run full speed ahead and fight. Uh, Houston actually had military training, and he realized that wasn't always the smartest thing to do against professional armies. So he retreated and retreated, and the Battle of San Jacinto happens when he thinks it's advantageous to fight. And so he had to sort of hold these wild Anglo-Texans in check until the right moment. And he won. He won a San Jacinto, and he captured the president of Mexico who was leading the army. So this was, this was a big deal. I mean, he's kind of lucky. Um, I, I like to say the Texans were pretty lucky. I mean, if you were betting, you know, you would not have bet on the Texans. It's kind of like in the NCAA basketball tournament in March Madness where they have these upsets where, like, you know, the number 12 seed upsets the number 5 seed. It's something like that. It's not totally impossible but most everybody assumed that the Mexicans would win. And in fact, even after San Jacinto, there's another Mexican army still in Texas that's not defeated. But Houston captures Santa Ana, and he uses yeah, him as the bargaining chip. And he gets all these promises, et cetera, and they're going to recognize Texas independence. And then Santa Ana goes back to Mexico, and his government repudiates all these treaties. So was, um, was Houston really just a, a good military person? Or was he, you know, I know he was first president, or at least elected president, not acting, uh, of Texas. I mean, is he, should we remember him more as a military figure or a political figure? Well, I think he's important as both. I mean, Texans were a pretty wild group of frontiersmen, and they didn't always follow orders of their leaders. And so to get Texans organized into an army that could defeat Santa Ana was a pretty tremendous accomplishment. Now, the armies themselves varied. Like the people that got caught at the Alamo and at Goliad, most of those were recent arrivals. Like, uh, like 80% of those people had, had been there just for a month or two or three. They came when the fighting broke out maybe with the idea that they're going to be rewarded with land because there were appeals to come help us in our fight and we'll take care of you with land. But Houston Army at uh, San Jacinto was more like 80% people that had actually been residing in Texas. So there is this outside force of people volunteering. In fact, there's one group where they got off a boat, they marched inland, and the next day they were captured by General Urea's army before they'd even had a chance really to learn where they were. So Houston's that important. He's very important as a president in the Republic of Texas also because he tried to, it's, it's, it's odd, he's a military leader who tries to avoid wars. He tries to solve things diplomatically because he realizes Texas isn't the biggest military power in the world and you should be careful not to go to war unless you're absolutely certain what the consequences will be because there could be unintended consequences. So he's a very steady figure among these other rather wild Texans who are always looking for another opportunity to fight with Mexico. So after, after the war, after the capture of Santa Ana, um, and Texas says they're an independent country, who recognizes them? Well, not very many people at first. I mean, that's a serious problem 
because in 1837, Anglo, uh, Andrew Jackson, president of the U.S., gives formal diplomatic recognition to Texas when it looks like the idea of annexing Texas is going nowhere. Nowhere because some people feel too many Americans have gotten involved in this. And also people in the northeastern U.S. say this looks like a slave conspiracy. Mm -hmm. It's an effort to expand slavery. So he recognizes Texas, but no other nation recognizes the Republic of Texas right away. So it's kind of like a rogue nation. Mm -hmm. It takes a couple of years before France in 1839 and the Netherlands and then England will recognize Texas. And what does it is that more and more Americans pour into Texas, some of them come with slaves, and cotton production rockets up. And now the European nations, especially England with a major textile industry, they want Texas cotton. And so now cotton becomes the way that Texas gains foreign recognition. But the key country is Mexico, and Mexico does not recognize Texas. There are no agreements. Every now and then there's a little border raid, and so hanging over the head of this Republic of Texas, which is a barrier for some investment, is the fact that Mexico considers this to be a breakaway province that someday will return to the mother country. Much like China today believes that Taiwan is not an independent republic, it's an old breakaway province from 1948 and the Chinese Civil War, and someday we're going to get it back. So well, I'm like kind of thinking about the Confederacy even. I mean, it sounds like Texas is far more successful as a independent nation than the Confederacy in terms of foreign policy and, and recognition. And, you know, at well, least, it lasted longer, it lasted nine years. Right. But it had all kinds of financial problems. It was always in debt. And that's why the British were important, because they wanted to become bankers for Texas and provide the loans and have another supply of cotton independent of the supply of cotton that came from the U.S. So the Republic of Texas kind of limped along. But there was always that danger. And there were some border raids by Mexican troops that Mexico might might make an effort. So actually, England tried to get Mexico to recognize the independence of Texas so that annexation would not be a possibility, and then England could have this special economic relationship with Texas. Ah. Well, you know, um, I'm not sure where it is, but there is a building with the plaque that says uh, former embassy of the Republic of Texas somewhere in London, and uh, I was shocked that they would have an embassy, but with cotton trade, that that does make sense, even a short-lived a country right. as they were. Even though the price of cotton fluctuates, and so that can be a bad year, which is really bad for the economy of Texas, cotton eventually is kind of like oil today or gold. I mean, it was the valuable commodity for industrializing nations. So Texas tried to use cotton as their mechanism to get outside financial assistance. But of course, Texans didn't revolt against Mexico in order to pay taxes right. to a Republic <laughs> of Texas. So it was always underfunded and bear, you know, struggling economically throughout its nine years. So when we think about um, Texas and Texas history, you know, we always... We always remember the Alamo, right? And, uh, you know, that's certainly a symbol of the state. But, you know, the original, I can't even remember who gives the speech. But, you know, the slogan is originally, remember Goliad, remember the Alamo. But why do we only remember the Alamo and not San Jacinto or Goliad or, or other aspects of the... 
Well, we, we do remember San Jacinto a little bit, but you're certainly right. I mean, the Alamo just sort of for, pushes out a public consciousness, any other uh, battle at the time. And certainly there's one key difference between the Alamo and Goliad, and that is that the Alamo, supposedly everybody fought to the last man. Actually, there are a couple of survivors, including uh, William B. Travis's uh, slave, uh, Joe, so there actually were a few survivors, at least two slaves and a couple of women and some children. Mm-hmm. So, that, But the idea of heroism fighting to the last man is compared to like the Greeks at Thermopylae. Whereas at uh, Goliad, they, the Texans got trapped in an open field and had to surrender. And then they're executed later as prisoners. So it's hard to celebrate people that surrender. And San Jacinto right. is really the key battle, but because it and you would think since it's an amazing success that it would be remembered more. But the Alamo, because of the heroism, which is a little bit like in Mexican history, Los Niños Etoes, which Mexican mm-hmm. students would be familiar with, who all die, of course, um, at Chapultepec defending Mexico against the foreign invaders from the U.S. And then Walt Disney plays a role in it. Uh-huh. Because the Alamo was not a shrine as of 1900, but then a group of women save it. And it becomes something of then a Texas shrine, then Walt Disney. Uh, popularizes Davy Crockett, and then Davy Crockett makes the Alamo famous around the world. So I grew up in Texas, and I had always heard, you know, stories about how special, you know, Texas exceptionalism, um, and that it's a special place because it had been a country as opposed to a territory when it becomes part of the United States. And I remember hearing things like Texas could legally secede, which obviously the Civil War showed that that's not true. Uh, but also things like uh, Texas could split into five states. Yeah. And that was part of the annexation agreement. Yeah, that's, that's certainly accurate. I mean, there wasn't anything about the right to s- s- secede. Although Texans argued since Texas came in as an independent nation that there was kind of like a contract and that the, the North had violated the contract or understanding... But that was not anything legal at all. But because Texas was so large, there was a provision in the um, Treaty of Annexation that it could be subdivided up to a total of five states. And actually, in the 1870s, there was some talk of splitting it into two states, which would have been basically East Texas and into a little bit of Central Texas, and then Central Texas, the border, and West Texas. Basically kind of like the cotton economy versus the ranching economy. Okay. Uh, but that fell through. But that's, uh, that's certainly true. Uh, Texas did. And think how much influence Texas would have if, in Congress and in the Senate if it had uh, subdivided into something like that. Well, I'm kind of surprised why, I mean, and maybe this is the reason why they didn't, but that slaveholding interests didn't encourage them before the Civil War to uh, split and and increase their uh, presence it doesn't in the seem to have, It doesn't seem to have come up uh, before the Civil War, and certainly the Republic of Texas was a slave republic, and the state of Texas was very definitely a slave society. I mean, enslaved people eventually make up uh, 30% of the Texas population. And at the same time that the Tejano population is dropping down to like 5 or 6%. So slavery was really crucial to the economic growth of Texas, which was a pretty prosperous state by 1830, but that's because the price of cotton was high. It's like 
Odessa being a great place to be when the world price of oil is up high. And then if the world price of oil crashes, Odessa is not such a great place for employment. <laughs> but um, cotton is what made Texas a pretty prosperous place as of 1860. And there were so so many areas of Texas that were not settled yet that they didn't really worry about subdividing. And of course, the northern free states would not have been sympathetic to that in the least. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just always thought that might have been a way to deal with the compromise of 1850. Uh, 1850. Well, thank you so much. Um, it was really great to learn a little bit more about Texas, particularly in the antebellum era. And uh, we're going to hear a little more in the next podcast about uh, Texas and the U.S.-Mexico War. So the story continues. Oh, yes. And that's, you know, that's part of Texas's legacy. It never establishes a border between Texas and Mexico. And so when it's annexed by the U.S., that becomes a U.S.-Mexican border issue. And then when you want to talk about the U.S.-Mexican War, you come back to this old argument about where was the southern boundary of Texas when it was a republic.